Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Luke 2, I want to start in verse 1, but I'm specifically going to be looking and we're going to be stopping and reflecting on verse 8, 9, 10, maybe 11. Um, and uh, what I want to do this morning is something a, a bit different that we don't normally do here uh, on Sunday mornings. I'm just going to reflect with you on Christmas. I know it's, it is Christmas, the Christmas season. Christmas is coming up on Saturday. If you didn't know, um, it's this Saturday. Just maybe mark your calendars or something. But uh, I, I want to reflect on Christmas. I'm not going to really preach. I don't know. I might get excited, but I doubt it. Um, I'm just gonna, we're just going to reflect on Christmas. I'm going to share a couple uh, things that I've been reading, stories, um, uh, looking at what the angels uh, saw, just this kind of the scene, and just kind of reflecting with you uh, on Christmas as we kind of prepare our hearts and our minds to get into, um, into this, uh, this holiday. So that's kind of what I want to do this morning. So let's read the most famous of all the Christmas stories in Luke chapter 2, and let's start in verse 1, and then read to verse 14. And I'll pray. Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth, to the town of Nazareth, to, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house in the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this, um, this season, this time of year. I pray that you, Jesus, would be very near, that you would draw near to us that you would draw near to us in the, the person of Jesus, that you would proclaim Christ to us this morning. And um, I know that this season brings up a lot, of, a lot of things, a lot of emotions, a lot of maybe hurt and pain and um, guilt. Uh, all, all of these things just, just come up around this time of year. And I pray that we would be okay with that this morning. We'd be okay with all the emotions that this season brings up, whether it's stress, worry, doubt, fear, excitement, fun, joy, whatever it is, we'd be okay with that and allow you to enter into where we're at right now. We thank you that you've gone to great lengths to reach us, and we pray that we would reflect on that today. I pray that you would anoint me and use me, God. I need your help. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Amen. So again, like I said this morning, I kind of just want to reflect with you. I know, this is, to be totally honest, one of the hardest sermons for a pastor to prepare all year long. It's because you guys know what's coming. Okay? You guys know, okay, I know what happens here in this story. People outside of the Christian faith celebrate this holiday. They know what happens. Everybody knows what goes on around Christmas. Everybody knows the Christmas story. And so what I want to do this morning is just, just reflect with you on the context of Christmas, what was going on during that time, what it really means that Christ has come down. So where I want to start is verse 1 in Luke chapter 2. I want to just look at this. Look at what happens here. It says, in those days, in the days where Christ, when Christ was born, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, did you notice that? <laughs> all the world should be registered. So the very beginning, the way that Luke starts his story of, of, of Jesus is that there's this context that the Christmas story is set. There's a political climate in which the Christmas story is set. There's a godly hope, this great expectation in which the Christmas story is set. And look at the way that Luke sets all of this up. We first, we meet this man who is this pompous, who is pompous enough to demand that the whole world be registered for tax reasons. He calls the, the world to be registered. His name is Caesar Augustus, we learn. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. His given name, his birth name was Octavian. He was renamed Augustus by the Roman Senate when they voted to give him that title, which actually means holy, okay? We call you Caesar the Holy or the Revered. It was a title that was reserved exclusively for the Roman gods. So they named this man Octavian. They renamed him Augustus. You are a god to us. Augustus was a man who would become a god in people's eyes. This is what Luke is saying. This is the context. Here's a man who would become a god. But in a peasant teenager's womb, on her way to Bethlehem, with her husband to be registered, in that womb lay the true god who would become a man. And this is the way that Luke likes to set up chapter 2, or the, 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 the Christmas narrative. There was this man who had all the power, the most powerful man in the known world, telling everyone in the world what to do, and all the while, in a poor, peasant, insignificant, teenager's little body, lay the Savior of the world, God in human flesh. And this is the way Luke tells his story. So what does this all mean? So I want to reflect on a couple things in, our, in this text today. Two things that we find in this most famous and popular announcement made by the angels to the lowly shepherds keeping their flock by night. The first is the promise of presence, not presents like gifts. Sorry to bum you guys out. Presents like his presence and the promise of peace. So I want to reflect on the promise of presence, his nearness, that God came near to us, that promise of God and that's what Christmas is really about. And then the promise of peace. And we all know that. The promise of presence. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God is always breaking in. If you've ever read throughout the Old Testament, it might be a good thing this next year in January to start fresh. You guys are probably going to make New Year's resolutions and all that fun stuff. Start in January 1st reading Genesis 1-1. And just start reading throughout the Old Testament. And what you're going to see and what you're going to find in the Old Testament narrative, God keeps breaking in to the Old Testament narrative. As the Old Testament unfolds, God establishes, it, it, it just establishes that God goes to Abraham 
And he calls Abraham on his pilgrimage. Then he goes to Moses and calls him to specific tasks. And he goes to David and through David establishes a kingdom. And as the Old Testament narrative unfolds, God is repeatedly predicted to break into our human time and space in an unprecedented way. Here's one of my favorite prophecies in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, when I read that to you, a lot of us go, you know, we don't really understand darkness. I mean, like literal, physical darkness. See, we're born into a time where night has been domesticated with artificial light. We just flip on a light switch, or turn on a flashlight, or open up our iPhones. That's all we do. Like, it's dark, I just hit my iPhone and just go, oh, look at this. Or if you have the new one, has that, anyway. You guys know. Okay, we, we have light always, everywhere. We've domesticated the darkness. The scriptures were written at a time where people knew darkness in a way that we do not. And behind all this darkness that they felt that they knew, there, it led to motifs and metaphors. See, when night fell in biblical time, it was dark. It was very dark. It was dark where they could not see. So darkness came to mean blindness or limited vision. They got lost in the dark, so they stumbled around the dark, and they couldn't see or find their way, and they were lost. In the dark, they were often afraid. Maybe you've been afraid of the dark. I don't know. So therefore, danger became associated with night. We don't know what danger may lurk or what spirits may roam or what evil may be afoot in the dark. Grief became associated with the dark of night. That's why mourners for centuries have wore dark clothing. And Psalm 30 says, grief lasts through the night, but joy comes in the morning, speaking metaphorically. So Isaiah 2 carried all this contextual, metaphoric, and prophetic weight. So it says this, the people who walked in darkness means they stumbled, they were lost, they were blind, they were afraid, they were grieving. The people who walked and they stumbled as they walked and they were lost as they walked and they were blind as they walked and they were afraid as they walked and they were grieving as they walked have seen a great light. And this light and these people who dwelt in deep darkness, light has shined. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this was that night that darkness broke with the dawn of light, where the light broke into the darkness, when the light would break into our world. And how would God announce such a great entry? He announces it to lowly, dirty, smelly shepherds. He goes to shepherds. Now, you have to catch the motif here, the way that Luke is telling this. God reveals the birth of of the Savior to ordinary, lowly people, shepherds. 
And all the while, God becomes a fetus inside of a tummy of a teenager who can't get a hotel room, who ends up giving birth in the equivalent of a public bathroom. That's what's really going on here. You're like, well, that's kind of scandalous. That's exactly what it's meant to do in our hearts. Like, whoa, wait, that's kind of offensive. When you read that, don't you picture the beautiful, nice manger and everyone around going, this is so nice. And look at the animals as they like bow at baby Jesus and stuff like that. And they do all of these things. That's not what was happening. Here's a scared, frightened teenager, full term, traveling to a town. She can't find a room, has it in a stinky manger or a cave or something like that. We don't know exactly what it was. When I say we, I don't mean like I researched or something, but people don't know what this is, okay? Could be a cave, it could be like a, a state, nobody knows what it is. But it's, it's somewhere to where it's lowly. This whole motif is like this. God comes into a teenager. He calls shepherds to worship. She's born in the equivalent of a restroom. It's like that. It's filthy. It's scandalous. Why would God do this? And you see, and you begin to see, and you're supposed to see, how God became low, how he's accessible, how he's approachable. More on that in a bit. But let's look at the angel's announcement. Look at verse 10. Angels bust in. They show up to these shepherds, gleaming light, it's dark, light shines, and they say, and they get afraid, shepherds get afraid, we would get afraid, we'll talk about that in a second, and they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the promised presence of God is good news to all people. See, Christmas, the way that we celebrate Christmas today, is like a double-edged sword. See, what makes it so great is also what makes it so horrible, right? What makes it so great, what makes Christmas so awesome, let's just be honest and not lie anymore, presents with a T, okay? We I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. We love to give and also to receive presents. But what makes this time of, of year so horrible is that we get a glimpse into how much of a consumer we are how consumeristic we are, how self-centered we are. Most times, if you're that person that doesn't want any presents, you're like, no, 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 don't give me anything. If you're that person, not every time, but I'd say most of the time, it's because you have enough money to buy yourself what you really want. <laughs> or the people that you know give you presents give really crap presents. You're like, listen, you know what? I don't want anything this year. Which doesn't really, you know, help us in, in, our, in our consumer mentality. But the other great part of Christmas is family and friends. But we all know the worst part of Christmas is family and friends. <laughs> See, there could be in our own lives, in our own families, hurt, very, very, very deep, deep hurt with our family. Pain, maybe a loss of a family member, and this time of year brings it all up again. Could have been a divorce in your family where you had the perfect little family and then divorce happened and now you don't even want to go around. You don't want to be around anymore, just awkward and weird. Maybe you've grown apart from your family. You have told, totally different values now than your family. Or there's been a major heartbreak or an offense. And what makes things worse this time of year is that you're expected to be happy this time of year. Like you have to be happy. This is the happy time. It's called the Christmas cheer or Christmas spirit. And if you're not, you're a Scrooge or you're a Grinch or something. You have to be happy this time of year. 
Everybody has to be whistling, singing Christmas songs and all this stuff. You, you're supposed to be. And when you don't want to be happy, because frankly, Christmas just reminds you of how messed up things are, maybe your family, your life, whatever. The last thing you want to do is be okay with it. You don't want to fake it. You don't want to like, I don't want to be around. Now, this is most everyone in here in, at some level, in some degree. What I want to look at now and reflect on is what if all of this was all backwards? If Christmas was a story about the incarnation of a rescuer, if Christmas is a story of the incarnation of the rescuer, wouldn't, it, wouldn't this be the time of year for everyone? Be a great time of year for everyone, especially those who need a rescuer? Wasn't the context of the Christmas story darkness? Think about that. This is the way that the gospel writers tell the story of Christmas. It was dark. It was night. It was a very dark night. There was trouble. They couldn't find any rooms. This was the context of the Christmas story. Christmas didn't start to be celebrated on December 25th until like the 300s. And the date that was decided to celebrate the birth of Jesus, because no one really knows when, the date that was decided to celebrate Christmas was right in the middle of winter solstice. The coldest, longest night of the year. Because that is the context of Christmas. Christ was born into our world at the coldest, deadest, darkest time of our lives. That's the context of Christmas. That's when Christ comes into our lives. That's when Christ comes into our world in the darkness. This is why the announcement of Jesus' birth is good news. This is the gospel, and it's for all people. The Christmas story is God coming into our darkness to bring us light. I was reading a, a blog this last week. This blog was entitled, Christmas is really for those who hate it most. Very provocative. I liked it. Let me read you a, a part of it here. Jesus came for those who look in the mirror and see ugliness. Jesus came for daughters whose fathers never told them they were, they were beautiful. Christmas is for those who, whose lives have been wrecked by cancer, and the thought of another Christmas seems like an impossible dream. Christmas is for those who would be nothing but lonely if not for social media. Christmas is for those whose marriages have careened against the retaining wall and are threatening to flip over the edge. Christmas is for those whose son, for the son whose father keeps giving him hunting gear when all he really wants is art materials. Christmas is for smokers who cannot quit even in the face of a death sentence. Christmas is for prostitutes, adulterers, and porn stars who look for love and long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for college students who are sitting in the midst of, of the family and already cannot wait to get out for another drink. Christmas is for those who traffic in failed dreams. Christmas is for those who have squandered the family name and fortune and want home but cannot imagine a gracious reception. Christus, Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. And he concludes, Christmas is really about the gospel of grace for sinners. Because of all that Christ has done on the cross, the manger becomes the most hopeful place in a universe darkened with hopelessness. And the irony of all ironies, Christmas is for those who will find it the hardest to enjoy. 
it is really for those who hate it most. The Christmas story is that we're broken, we're dark, we're blind, we can't see, we need a savior, and Christ comes in. Do you see how the Christmas story, if you're a follower of Jesus, it gives you the resources to go to your family. It gives you the resources to enjoy Christmas. And I know this is the hardest thing, but you have and I have the resources to go in in love, in forgiveness, in humility. We have this in Jesus because that's what it's about. That is the context of Christmas. So if you're really bummed out that you're not happy right now, if you're really bummed out that it's a dark time in your life right now, and then Christmas just adds to that, I want you to think of the context of the first Christmas. This was the context. That Christ came in to this world. That's the good news. That's why the angels proclaimed, this is good news for all people. This is the gospel. God drawing near to man. Look at the second part of the angel's announcement. Verse 11. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Whenever I read this section, I think of Linus and Charlie Brown. So awesome. Anyway. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. This is so ironic when you read it. Christ the Lord, city of David, the greatest king. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. And here's the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. See, the promised presence of God is, at the, is the Savior wrapped in humility. Kierkegaard tells a parable of a king. And this king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dread dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all his opponents, yet this king was mighty, he was a mighty king, but he, and he was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her, Kierkegaard writes? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he, if he brought her to the palace and crowned her with jewels and clothed her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him, but would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she really? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he really know? If he rode to her forest cottage in a royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted to, her to forget that he was a king and that she was a humble maiden and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not alleviate or could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar, and approached her cottage incognito, with a worn cloak fluttering loosely behind him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. See, what these angels were proclaiming to these shepherds is what Kierkegaard was writing about. In the city of David, Israel's greatest king, the Savior, is born. He is the Christ the Lord, him, it's him. 
How will you know? Well, he's wrapped in humility, in swaddling clothes, with his hands just wrapped up against his chest so he stays warm. He's embodied vulnerability. He's a helpless baby in the arms of Mary. And think about this. Look at the first words out of the angel's mouth. What were they? They show up gleaming, glowing, awesome, radiant, and they say, hi? No, they, say, they don't say hi. They say, fear not. If you go throughout the Old Testament and you look at when angels appear, they always say, fear not. Why? Because they're scary. Okay? They're scary. When heaven touches earth, it's scary. They always, I think when you go through angel training, you have to learn that. Okay, first thing you do when you approach a human, what are your first words? Fear not. Got it. You have to say fear not. If you do not, they will die. Their hearts will pop. It will not be good. Okay? So walk up and go, fear not. And then they go, oh, okay, I'm not going to fear. And then you go on with your story. Okay? Every angel does this. They say, fear not. See, initial encounters with God or his messenger frightens most everyone in the Bible. This is why they always say, fear not. When heaven touches earth, it's always scary. When God touches earth, there's fire in the Old Testament. There's earthquakes, whirlwinds, thunder, and it always causes fear. Now, here's the question. How would God appear on earth without totally crushing us in fear? How would he win us? How would he woo us? How would he show that he loves us? He had to descend in the humble state of man. Not just that, but the humble state of a fetus that became a baby, that became a man. Frederick Buechner said, in the, fa the face in the sky, the child born in night among beasts, the sweet breath and steaming dung of beasts, and nothing is ever the same again. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths he, of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in the least auspicious of all events, his birth, the birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe. That we, there is no place that we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart. Because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong. And just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. See, when you see Jesus in the manger, when you see God coming down in the form of a baby, taking on human flesh, becoming all of God but then all of man, it ruins you. Because there is no links that God will not go to to save you to rescue you. There is nowhere he could not pop up in your life. There's no off limits to God. And you see how approachable this child is, how accessible a manger is. We might be scared of a throne. We might be scared of a church, but no one's really scared of a manger. And you see how approachable 
God is. Christ, God in flesh, he's come, he's broken into our world, the world he created to save us. And there is no lengths that he will not be willing to go, no ludicrous depths of self-humiliation, Beekner says. He is not willing to plummet. I mean, look at how scandalous his birth is. There's nothing that God is not willing to do in this wild pursuit of mankind. But not only that, look at how vulnerable he becomes. Because what happens when Christ is born is that he becomes vulnerable. Beekner goes on and he says this, for those who believe in God, it means this birth, that God himself is never safe from us. And maybe that's the dark side of Christmas, the terror of the silence. He comes in such a way that we can always turn him down. As we could crack the baby's skull like an eggshell or nail him up when he gets too big for that. You see how vulnerable God made himself? To become a baby that you can literally just crack his skull open? When he gets too big for that, to nail him on a cross? See, God becomes vulnerable to our rejecting him. See, when God comes as a baby, we can reject a baby. When God comes as a boy, we can reject a boy. When God comes as a man, we can reject that man. And this is how vulnerable he's made himself for us. The last part of this, this is where we'll close, the last part of this is the promise of peace. Notice that the angels say, peace on earth. This is not necessarily a peace that's out of this world. It's right here. It's right now. Christ has come to bring us peace. But that peace that it's talking about is between us and God. That's why it says the promise of peace is toward whom he is pleased, meaning that there was displeasure because of sin. There's ill will because of sin. Now, because Christ has come, he has brought peace. And the way that he has brought peace is by, as Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The way that we have peace with God is because he came down into our world and died our death. And so as we look at Christmas, as we reflect on it, as we behold Christ, we behold how he has gone through great lengths to save us, but how he's made himself vulnerable to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much as we just re reflect on Christmas, Lord. We, um, we want to behold you, God, in a way that maybe we've never beheld you on, on Christmas, how you've made yourself both vulnerable to us, God, and accessible to us at the same time, how you've come in weakness but also in strength. And I pray as we reflect on this, Lord, the Christmas story would, for us, people that have heard this a million times, it would come alive to us in our hearts. I pray that you would transfer, Lord, um, the things that we know to be true in our head and you'd make them true in our hearts. I pray that people in here that maybe have been far from you from a very for a very long time would come back. They would see how your approachability 
and those who are near to you would worship you because you've gone through great lengths to save us. We thank you, Lord, for your birth. In Jesus' name, amen.